and you have to ask the question, does it does it fulfill the couple rules of tragedy that we know? Is the world better off without Eddie Carbone by the end of the play? Or, or uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's such a hard question to answer, even in no, your tragedy. No, it's not. <laughs> I, it, I don't know that the world's better off without Eddie Carbone. The people that neighborhood him. maybe is. <laughs> again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And we are back with episode two of Miller Month. We are going through four Arthur Miller plays in a similar way that we did Musical Month in season one. Last week, you heard us talk about The Crucible, I hope. And this week, we are talking about A View from the Bridge. Yes, A View from the Bridge. I am very excited to talk about this play, as I always am. I I feel like I say that a lot, but please believe me, every time I'm excited. Because this one is one of those ones that I had that, like, emotional reaction to, uh, like, where I, like, threw the script across the room, if I remember correctly. This one and, like, Eugene O'Neill's Beyond the Horizon are two that stick out in my head as the ones I threw across the room during college. (laughs) Yes, I remember reading this play for the first time in an office, in our theater office where we went to our undergraduate grad and I had been given it to look for a scene or something and I did the same thing I like slammed <laughs> the script down <laughs> yeah enough it, it, of this it evokes an emotional reaction <laughs> oh that's interesting we'll talk about yes. that in, in one short moment I'm sure in one short moment but before then I would like to evoke something else in all of you and that is to go over and check out our patreon pa- generosity uh, is what we're trying to evoke, yeah, evoke generosity, generosity. <laughs> <laughs> I would like you to go and check it out. We're over on Patreon.com. We uh, we love making this show. We love spending time on it. It's very rewarding to us. We love getting to talk about plays. However, it is not free. It does cost a, an amount per month. We uh, have been paying most of that out of our own pocket, and we love it. We love what we do. But if you want to help us out to keep this show rolling, you can go over to Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can become one of our patrons. And there's uh, special patron-only posts over there that we're working Working on getting up and running for you all. There's uh, the opportunity to be a uh, uh, have producer credit. We'll say your name at one of the tiers of patronship over there during the episode. And uh, thank you personally for being a part of the awesome No Script community. So. If you have a minute, go and check us out over on Patreon. It'll just take a little bit of your time, and you'll be contributing to the continuation of us talking about more great plays. And the lowest tier is one dollar. One dollar. Just a dollar a month. Uh, We hope that you are getting at least that amount of return on your time investment with us as you're here. So, like Jackson said, please go over to Patreon for us. Now on to our conversation about A View from the Bridge. So this is by playwright Arthur Miller. Obviously, it's part of Miller Month. Originally, it was staged in 1955. It was actually a one-act back then, and I have never seen or read the one-act version of it. It was presented with another short play, A Memory of Two Mondays. I like to call that pairing the most boring plays ever titled. The most ti- <laughs> the most boringly titled plays ever presented. A View from the Bridge and A Memory of Two Mondays, those are two 
boring titles to run (laughs) right next to each other. They they beat out Riverside and Crazy for you, huh? Oh, Riverside and Crazy is a bad title. It's not just boring. It's bad. Yeah, I'm a title snob. Regular listeners know this. I have comments about it, but we're not going to get into that today because I have so much respect for Arthur Miller. I've said my piece. (laughs) So that pairing of one acts did not go very well in New York, and so he rewrote A View from the Bridge as a two-act play, a full-length play. That was produced in the West End under the direction of Peter Brook, the famous uh, English director. He wrote An Empty Space, a really uh, important book and a way of thinking about the way that we do theater, especially for directors. So Peter Brook directed that production. Of course, that sparked the phenomenon that is a, a view from the bridge today. It's probably Arthur Miller's third most known play behind The Crucible and and then Death of a Salesman is his most known play, obviously. Mm-hmm. There have been many revivals of the play. Um, Apparently in 1965, Dustin Hoffman was like assistant directing and stage managing a production. And the director said, oh, you'd be a great Willie Loman someday. And so there's like, there's an interesting backstory there. And then most recently, there was a production that had Mark Strong and Phoebe Fox and Nicola Walker in it. Um, that production won a huge amount of uh, Olivier Awards, which are uh, over across the pond, um, including Strong for Best Revival and for Best Director for, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Ivo von Hove, maybe. Um, that was over at the Young Vic, and then it, it moved on to Broadway. Uh, of course, we have among our our co-hosts here a person who saw that production, and that person is not me. <laughs> it's me. I was so lucky to see that production on a study abroad trip that I did at the end of my senior year in college. We went. Uh, it was at the Young Vic, if I remember correctly, um, and uh, we saw it in this this beautiful space. It was uh, kind of a. Uh, not quite. Oh, what's what's the word? It's a, a deep thrust stage. Um, it, and uh, three sided, and it was just beautiful. This beautiful production, highly it was very stylized. minimalist, if I recall. Is that right, Jackson? I've seen many pictures of it. Very minimalist production. Very minimalist. Just kind of. It, it was almost like uh, the whole set was uh, almost like a bathhouse shower area. It looked like with, with. It's impossible to describe really well. Look at pictures of it. It's so simple and beautiful. Um. And 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 so uh, so evocative as well. It took some of the style, the lack of stylization in this very naturalistic written play in a style of naturalism, and went for some uber stylized parts, which I think wound up serving right. it. Right, because that is very interesting. I did not get to see that production. I didn't do that study abroad trip, but I very much wish I had. I am very passionate about minimalist stylized theater. That's one of the things that I especially love. And it's it's very interesting to apply that to Arthur Miller, who's typically a very realist, almost naturalist, uh, very full set box sets typically, and very detailed sort of looks at the inner lives of people including all the stuff that they have in their homes. That's typically how you would design and do an Arthur Miller show, at least in the most obvious way possible. But this went a very different direction. Yeah, it went a very different direction. And even if you read uh, Arthur Miller's introduction, at least in my book, he talks about even the first Peter Brook production pushed his naturalism a little bit. He was like, the 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 West End style is just different than the, than the, than the New York style. And it's so England in general seems to have a little bit of ownership over this play <laughs> and, and, and how to do it. And yeah, this, this play was no exception. They 
one of the one of the really poignant moments, and we'll get to it eventually. But there's a a, a lot of use of blood in the play, and it was um, a, a stunning moment of a shower of blood coming down on stage. Really, really kind of jarring and evocative for for the moment that it was. So, there, also fun story with that. So, Mark Strong was in that production. He was the the he played Eddie Carbone, who we will get to in a moment. Um, but Jude Law was in the house that night as well. Uh, Jude Law was uh, we we saw him from the the upper balconies, and some of my friends like chased him down afterwards. I tried to be not that person, um, but but still, like it was it was fun to see. You know, it was uh, it's a, a smaller theater crowd over there, so it was cool to see many famous people in the crowd that night. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of brings us through the play's long and storied history, uh, all the way from 1955 until now, where there are still major, very critically acclaimed, very creative revivals being done of this script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm going to kind of synopsize it so we can jump into some conversation around it real quick. Um, I think the best way to synopsize this is just to tell you some of the biggest characters in it. Um, and then we'll just kind of jump off from there and, and head through this script. Um, the, the, the big character, the, 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 the tragic hero of this play is uh, Eddie Carbone. Um, Eddie Carbone is a long shipman, I think is what they're called. Uh, he unloads the cargo ships that come into the New York Harbor. Um, his family is Beatrice is his wife and Catherine is his niece. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about that family dynamic in a moment. And then there are two pretty significant others who come who are, uh, Marco and Rodolfo. And those are Beatrice's cousins and they are immigrating from Italy. Um, where, where that picks up is, uh, the, the, the kind of the, one of the big moments of the, the, the starting conflict of the play is they come over from Italy to try to work and they are sheltered by, Eddie and Beatrice in their house as as uh, illegal immigrants there to work and send money back home to their families in Italy. Other important characters are Alfieri. Uh, Alfieri is a lawyer and kind of serves as the narrator of this piece. Um, he uh, Eddie I comes. Di- to I got a different title for him, but let's get that to that in a minute. I'm not sure I would call him the narrator, but we'll we'll get there in a minute. Sure, 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 sure. Well, he he certainly talks to the audience quite a bit, at least, and uh, but he is uh, kind of a confidant of Eddie's. I think I think those are the big ones for me. There are also the two friends, uh, Louis, Louis and Mike, um, who are friends of Eddie's, who will play a role in the play as well. But the the five that a lo- or the six really that a lot of attention should be paid to are Eddie and Beatrice, their niece, Catherine, Rodolfo and Marco, and Alfieri. Right. So through the course of the play, f- for those of you who haven't read it, just sort of a brief plot overlook. Really, what occurs is that um, one of these two cousins, Rodolfo, starts to strike up a relationship with Catherine, uh, Eddie's niece, and Eddie harbors very um, uncomfortable. Some would say paternal. That's probably not all of it. Uh, also no. passionate, <laughs> yeah. um, even romantic feelings for Catherine. He, is, Catherine is Beatrice's niece by blood, so he's mm-hmm. not related to her by blood, which I think is important for whatever level of comfortability you're going to decide about this this weird thing he's got going with Catherine. Um, 
And so Eddie beca- Eddie gets very jealous. He's raised her from being a little girl. Apparently, he promised Catherine's mother on her deathbed that he'd watch out for her. Now she's 17, nearly 18, about to go out on her own. And she meets this cousin, uh, an illegal immigrant from Italy. And they strike up a relationship. And really, the whole play is the disastrous fallout of Eddie's jealousy um, and the terrible things that occur because he... He, he he doesn't want Catherine to be, especially with Rodolfo, he claims, but the audience may be left to think with anybody. Yeah, it's it's this it's this slow boil of kind of watching that core uh, issue of Eddie's is that he he loves Catherine um, and it's and it's um, not OK um, in the family context, in the natural context and and uh, the. Uh, the, the Alfieri, who I think we'll jump off into in a minute here, um, Alfieri names it as this thing that you can see coming from a long way away, and you just you can't stop it. And he keeps having different analogies for I wish I could have stopped this thing that was coming, but nothing had happened yet, and so I couldn't. And it's it's that slow boil of watching Eddie kind of devolve around that one big flaw of his that sets off everything in the play. So even in our introductions here, we've been dancing around a, a, a sort of structural reality of this play. We've said the, uh, we said we've talked about its sort of emotional outbursts that it caused in the audience, the emotional encountering and interacting with the script. A uh, different word for that might be catharsis. Jackson has somewhat in jest called Eddie a tragic hero. Um, <laughs> now we've talked about the lawyer, uh, Mr. Alfieri, who Jackson called a narrator, and I would like to call a chorus. Mm-hmm. And I think you, uh, those of you who uh, come from a theater background can kind of see where I'm headed here. I'd like to talk, Jackson, about A View from the Bridge as a tragedy, a Greek-style yeah. tragedy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, I'm, I'm so glad that we are going to talk about it as a tragedy because I feel like we might have missed out on the chance with The Crucible a little bit because of our conversation. So I really want to dig into Arthur Miller's use of Greek tragedy and, and who better than Eddie Carbone to jump us off into that. Right, because, you know, I, I said at the beginning of View from the Bridge is a little bit of a boring title. I might have, you could you could title this play or even subtitle it The Tragedy of Eddie Carbone. Yeah, and, and, and so, so let's break it down. So what, what makes a tragic hero? We haven't really done this too much before. I think we might have done it with Oedipus Rex, but what are some of the, let's trade back and forth, what are some of the elements of a tragic hero within classic Greek structure? Right, so typically a tragic hero is an otherwise good person, a person who, in, in Greek theater, this would be a ruler or a leader of some sort, typically a king. Um, in, in Arthur Miller's sort of reimagining of that structure, he casts it as sort of an everyday person. And maybe sort of the ruler of his household, you could potentially call him. But Eddie is described over and over by his wife, by Alfieri, as a good person, sort of decent to his core, works hard to provide for his family. You can kind of see him and someone like Creon sharing a sort of core work ethic of steering the ship, you know, trying to doing doing what they can, putting all their efforts into keeping things upright. Mm-hmm. And people look to him as well within the community. He has friends who talk to him and and, and, and kind of, he, you get the idea that a lot of things flow through Eddie in in the area. He hears reports, or he says he hears reports from people on the docks of things that are happening. So he's a he's a central figure in the town. Um, count, countering all these good things within the the uh, Greek tragedy structure, there's normally kind of one 
one big thing, maybe more things if you want to be intricate, but one big thing, one tragic flaw about the tragic hero that is their undoing. That because they turn that facet of their character cranked to 11, they lead themselves down a road that has a terrible end at the at, at the end of the road. <laughs> and and if nothing else, this play is a steady in the idea of a tragic flaw. Because the whole of the plot of this play, the whole of the story that unfolds is centered around this crack in Eddie's character. Mm-hmm. This this wound, this uncomfortable reality. And you know what? It's kind of an ancient Greek thing, isn't it? The sort of <laughs> yep, incestuous, incestuous. Mm-hmm. Um, uncomfortable love. Uh, typically, often, the Greek tragic flaw would be hubris. I'm not sure that Eddie's really is pride. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it that. His tragic flaw seems to be unnatural affection. Yeah. Or um, uh, you you might even it depends I suppose on how exactly you read the play. You could call it lust. You could call it jealousy. Um, that uh, overtake him and drive him down a path which his sort of good nature otherwise would not seem to lead him towards. Mm-hmm. I think I think also kind of marrying that in with the idea of the trait that is that should be good but is cranked to 11 and thus turns out bad. So I would maybe even push us towards playing with the idea of that that he's a caretaker and 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 he loves his family. Um but because of this this switch, he 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 does that too much. He loves Catherine too much. Well, that's and that's how Alfieri describes it too. That, that's a little bit uncomfortable, Ooh. I think, in the idea that all that he is doing is loving too much in the you know in the wrong place. That sort of casts him as. Um, it casts him almost as a good guy who, you know, it's sort of like on a job application when people are like, well, what are your weaknesses? And you're like, well, I work too hard. <laughs> and everybody just says, well, Eddie loves too much. <laughs> and that, I don't, I don't know that that casts him as enough of the villain that he, That's he true. truly ends up being in the course of this script. Not that I, not that I don't think that his, his destruction is brought about by a, a real love for Catherine, um, not even just a romantic love. Part of what happens to Eddie is that he just gets mixed up, and he never admits that he has certain romantic feelings for her, but the characters around him, except for Catherine, know that to be the case, mm-hmm. and they see that in him. And, and he has a hard time separating out what are these sort of paternal, like, I want, I you know, I, I, I raised her, I want what's best for her, I want her to move up and and out and and be better than I ever could with this I also want her in my house and around me and talking to me only. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So 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 may, maybe the right way to phrase it would be his 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 love leads to lust. Would that be a way to to kind of hit or, the two of them together or I mean I I am interested in in possession. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. His his possessiveness. Yeah, okay. I see what you're going with there. Yeah. Yeah, which is definitely true. He like he like um is is this way too protective uh papa bear. <laughs> you know, and it, and it and it leads to too much. And it, and and I I totally agree. It's messy because and and it's messy for him, it's messy for everyone involved because 
He's 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 raised her from a uh, from a very small child up to this age now where she has to be able to be free. And it's that crucial moment of he can't let her be free. And there's too much connection there. So I I, th- I, I think I agree with that. There we go. That that helps. <laughs> so then in this sort of uh, tragedy structure that A View from the Bridge follows, uh, Arthur Miller uses, uh, again, a sort of adaption of a Greek element of this chorus. And the reason why I quibble a little bit with calling Alfieri a narrator is that he doesn't actually narrate the action he comments on and observes the action and then reflects to us what he has observed about the things that are occurring. But, but he doesn't really provide, um, provide information about what is going on in the scenes in the same way a narrator would. It's a little bit of a quibble, but I think that he fills more the role of a chorus, which is to see what happens and provide some commentary and context and, on what happens. Mm-hmm. Someone outside of the family who looks in and notes the things things that are going on. He also, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that's an important distinction. I don't think it's an unnecessary quibble. I think that is a really cool quibble that makes it like, (laughs) (laughs) that makes him the chorus. I think he also kind of serves as the prophet though. He has kind of a dual, a dual role in that he is the one who Eddie tries to confide in, in the play and ends up giving him news that he doesn't want to hear, but it's truth he warns him that the thing is coming and Eddie refuses his advice. So Well, and of course the prophet character also deals in destiny. Mm-hmm. And Alfieri is the character that deals in destiny. You know, the discussions about Alfieri says, you know, I, I can see it coming a mile away. I can lay out everything that is going to happen from now until the end of the story from the first time I met Eddie. It's it, There's no stopping it. It's destiny. It's going to happen. Yeah. And brilliantly, he never uses the word destiny in a similar way that Eddie doesn't really use lust or jealousy or love or any of that language to talk about Catherine. It's sort of the unspoken reality of the play that what Alfieri is talking about is the trajectory, the inevitable trajectory trajectory that Eddie has put himself on. Mm-hmm. There's so much unspoken in this play. I like that that word has come up because Eddie will not say things. Alfieri will not say things. Um, and El- Eddie won't say more than one thing. He won't say things about Catherine. He won't identify his feelings there. He won't identify some of his feelings around Beatrice for a bunch of the play. He won't really come out and say what his problem with Rudolfo is. He talks around that problem for the whole play. And even when he identifies what he is having a problem with Rudolfo, and it's not actually what his problem is. The problem is Rudolfo's stealing Catherine from him. <laughs> Well, and even when he kind of says what he th- what his sort of issue with Rodolfo is, he doesn't use the the words, right? right I think yeah. that's a great observation. A lot of this play is unspoken. And that's one of the things I noted when I read it is the language in this play is not it's not as descriptive as some of other Miller, Arthur Miller's other plays. The dialogue especially tends to be very sub, very, very subtextual. Oh, the yeah. characters have a lot of like, yeah, wells, you know, we're, lines where what they're saying are sort of, I'll call it like bland English uh, that, that would seem at face value not to carry very much weight. But what Miller has done is underwritten a whole emotional subplay that occurs outside of the language. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit different for him, especially coming from last week talking about a play like The Crucible, in which the language plays such a highlighting role. 
Um, in this play, the language almost takes a back seat to the emotional subplot. Definitely. I mean, you have a whole character that is the center of, uh, in some ways, the center of physical power against Eddie, remaining silent the whole time. Marco does not have very many lines in this play. But Marco is kind of the only one that is physically intimidating enough to counter Eddie's physicality in this play. All of these guys are, are dock workers, right? Like, they're meant to be really imposing. Except for Rodolfo. Well, but he works on the docks, too. I mean, he's strong. <laughs> so now That's not what Eddie thinks. It's not what Eddie thinks. We might be seeing him through, a, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, like a little bit of a weighted, skewed view. Yeah, but he certainly <laughs> does not carry the physical presence that... Marco does. And Marco doesn't have a lot of lines in this play. He's a kind of a, uh, Eddie refers to him as kind of a bull who is uh, strong and silent. He gets, he, he says that Marco gets it. He has a lot of respect for Marco until more events ensue. Marco is such an interesting character. Jackson, think back, if you can, to the first time that you interacted with this play. When you read the lines of Alfieri's talking about how there's a, an inevitable conclusion to this story, who would you have thought the inevitable violent conclusion would be between? Hmm. I mean, Eddie's obviously one of them, but if you had to just pick, I mean, it's hard to imagine back to your first time, but if you had to pick who Eddie was going to fight at the end of the play. Eddie was going to fight somebody. That was pretty clear. Well, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Pro but probably Rodolfo. Probably Rodolfo, the, the target. Right? And I remember his, being yeah. very surprised the first time I read it in that office. I have a very visceral memory of that play. I remember being sort of surprised that the play's climactic conclusion comes in a fight between him and Marco. Mm -hmm. I think I think what, what has helped me... I, I, you're right, it is hard for me to envision back then because I have watched it since. And the thing that comes out in the production of the play is how close Marco and Rodolfo are. Marco is like this really protective older brother of Rodolfo. And anytime something comes up where Rodolfo is coming across the line, there are lines where Marco will say, Rodolfo, you're going to do this now. And Rodolfo's like, well, I'm gonna... no, you're going to well, do this. Well, right, yeah. A great example of that is, is uh, right at the beginning of Act 2, I think, um, the, the family has sat down after dinner and are sort of discussing, and it comes out that Eddie's got some problems. Actually, I think it's the end of Act 1. And, uh, he, the, you know, they don't ever talk about what the real problem is. What Eddie says the problem is, hey, you're keeping her out until midnight. She didn't ever stay out till midnight before. And Marco's immediately like, Rodolfo, Get home early next time. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And then you, have, of course, at the end of Act One, you have that really powerful image of Marco and the chair. That is still. Right. And that's the best foreshadowing for the end, which is still a little, you know, is a little surprising that he doesn't fight Rodolfo at the end. He ends up in a fight with Marco. And the, the, the real core foreshadowing for that moment is the physical, in, the incredibly, again, it's all in subtext, right? Because what are they doing? Lifting a chair. Right. But what, what, what's deep inside is the physical, aggressive, you know, mano a mano, shove back and forth boxing match yeah. that is occurring after after a real boxing a match real has boxing. just occurred. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that scene. That is still that is the scene that hit a chord in me. I think it is interesting to read this play now. It's been a couple years since I saw it. It's been more years since I've read it. 
And uh, I think when I read it the first time, I was so into Marco. Like, I, I still want to play Marco. I can't. I'm Irish looking. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I can lift the chair the way Marco does. And I, and I was, and I like proved to myself in college that I could. And when I reread this play, I did it again because it's such a, <laughs> it's a great trick. But it's such a good scene because he, in that scene, what I love about it is he's not. Again, he's not using his words. He is showing Eddie that that there is someone else here who could stand up to him. He is intensely grateful to Eddie. But he knows that Eddie is starting to work around towards something against Rodolfo. And that's not going to stand with Marco by the end. So, well, And it's so important that he does that at that moment, too, because of what we've, we've just mentioned about the boxing match. Because in the middle of having all these problems with Rodolfo and talking about you're keeping her out too late and he's so jealous and blah, 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 uh, Eddie sort of suddenly gets up and is like, Rodolfo, why don't I teach you how to box? Yeah. And he sort of has a friendly boxing exchange and then kind of suddenly hits him a little bit too hard. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the room kind of goes, what? <laughs> what just happened? Or something? And then almost right after that, Marco goes, uh, can you lift a chair like I can lift a chair? Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's, this, just, it's this subtle threat. Just a, and not even a threat. It's just a subtle, I want you to acknowledge the reality that I'm stronger than you. Mm-hmm. Just, I just want you to bear that in mind. Yeah, just remember that. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That scene with Mark Strong was so good because Mark Strong is this big guy, right? And the guy playing Rodolfo was this little, little dude. Uh, and um, and it was just such an intimidating scene where he's boxing him, but then Marco was also a similarly physically imposing person. It just worked very well in that scene. I love loved that scene. Yeah, and that's why, you know, to imagine a play that is set in such a minimalist style I think works so well because the play itself is sort of minimalist in its writing and and that leads to sort of maximum emotional and um, you know tension building scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you steep in these scenes for a long time. It feels like when when you're watching it because you know the subtext. You know pretty quickly, depending on how the production deals with the first scene, that there's something kind of up between the relationship between Eddie and Catherine. The they they, they can be quite physical in that first scene. Um, Beatrice mentions throughout the play. Uh, how Catherine throws herself at Eddie. And Catherine mentions throughout the play how well she reads Eddie. She knows what Eddie needs when he comes home, like when he wants a beer and when he needs to just talk to someone and have them listen. So she does that. She she loves him like a father. Um, she wants to be helpful to him, but it's this, it's this crossed wires of what she is giving is not necessarily what he's receiving out of that. Yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned Beatrice talking about that because... As I read it, I noticed this sort of interesting similarity and almost a back and forth between Eddie and Beatrice both sort of working on Catherine. They're Mm. both wanting Catherine to grow up, right? That's sort of the central message to Catherine across the play is you need to grow up. You're almost 17, and then they both have this laundry list of things she can't do anymore. You can't be like this. You can't be like this. And it's, you know, the the advice at that level seems so similar. Right. 
and then you you weigh in sort of what each character is after, and suddenly the advice becomes drastically different, right? Because Eddie's advice is, well, you have to grow up, which means you can't be just walking around talking to any boy on the street. You got to be more conscious about what you're wearing. You need to get a good job in a good neighborhood so that you're not working with people like plumbers. You know, you need to grow up and and recognize the kind of person that Rodolfo is. You're gonna get you're gonna get hurt. You need to grow up and become aware of that. And Beatrice is, you need to grow up and you can't do this. You can't be walking around the apartment in your underwear anymore. You can't be sitting in the bathroom while Eddie's getting ready every morning just chatting away while he's in his underwear. You can't run and hug him like you're his girlfriend every time he comes home from work. Right, yeah. And 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 I, I, I totally agree that those two goals have just like similar tactics, but this, the, the slight tick that they're different makes for a drastically different result. I love Beatrice's role in general in this play. I, I think I think this play does what uh, I, I briefly mentioned about Crucible that I, I wish uh, in some ways had happened with Elizabeth Proctor. This play, Beatrice like is equal arguing has has an equal arguable ability with Eddie. They've spar right. verbally yeah, through this is. play. She is not a cowering character. She is, at least in terms of ability to hold her own, every bit uh, the same as Eddie. And it's only really in the end when Eddie just says, you know, if you don't do what I want, you can't come home, that he ultimately is able to win over her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if he hadn't had, if he didn't have the power to just kick her out, I'm not sure he ever would have been able to overwhelm Beatrice. No, yeah, definitely not. And 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 even in that, he's he's lost so much by that point that I'm not even sure he really wins against her. He's, well, he's he, lost so much. He wins much that ground. battle having yeah. lost the whole war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Catherine because I mean. Both Eddie and Beatrice, as we mentioned, want her to grow up to sort of understand things about the world that for some reason they think she doesn't. Why is that? Where Where is Catherine in her life or what has happened to her? I mean, she's a very interesting character to me that, uh, for, for example, at one point Beatrice says, you know, you can't. She says, if if I talk to Eddie about you and Rodolfo, if I say, you know, you should let you and Rodolfo be together, Eddie's just going to think I'm jealous. Do you think I'm jealous, Catherine? And Catherine says, no, I didn't think you were jealous. I've never even thought about that. Yeah, Yeah, and Beatrice kind of rolls her eyes a little bit and goes, well, you should have thought about that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, even in that moment, Beatrice sort of recognizes, like, you're just not getting it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why not? I don't I think I think you have to ask some interesting questions about that. If you're going to you have to make some decisions as a director and the actress playing Catherine. How much she knows and and I think there's quite a bit of wiggle room. Um I I don't know if there's necessarily one answer as to how much she you you want to play how much she knows how much she's affecting Eddie. Um how much she knows, how much she's affecting Beatrice and the family dynamic. Um, how much she knows, uh, how how tenuous her relationship with Rudolfo is. Those are all really good questions to try to narrow down for this character because she's written at, at she is she is. I hesitate to use this analogy, but she is kind. We've alluded to it already. Eddie already. She's kind of a pawn between. 
uh, Eddie and Beatrice and Rodolfo through this play. They, she, she is pulled in different directions throughout the whole play between these three points, and eventually she makes a choice. And, and that choice will have different ramifications depending on how you've decided to govern her journey throughout the play. So that's a long way to say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, the clues that we get are that Beatrice accuses Eddie several times of never letting her go out, never letting her sort of learn what the things that she's supposed to need to learn to understand. Like, you know, Beatrice's accusation, Beatrice's accusation is you seem to not understand that you're not his daughter by blood. And so you walk around here in your underwear and you just seem to not get that you're a grown woman now and he's a grown man. That's at least Beatrice's accusation. And Beatrice's um, maybe reasoning or her accusation against Eddie is, well, you made her that way. You've never let her go out. You've kept her under your thumb. And then there are some realities which seem to be sort of in conflict with that. And that's sort of how Eddie defends himself. He says, well, I let her go to school. You know, I paid for her to go to learn to type so she could go get a job with, you know, important people and work in offices. What do you mean? I, do you think I, what do you mean I was trying to control her or keep, control her life? What do you mean I didn't want her to get married? I've done all this for her so she could go out and bloom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, again, kind of really subjective, uh, points of views. We don't we don't know the full story of everything or the, the the motives whether they were pure or not from from a while ago. What we do know are the effects. And we what we do know is things like uh Beatrice and Eddie's relationship has severely deteriorated for for months prior to the the events of this play. Um, right, yeah, they are Eddie is not able to not interested in sleeping with Beatrice. Um and, you know, what's that about? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, clearly it's related to the feelings that he's having for Catherine. But, uh, yeah, that, that's another sort of odd layering as to – and what what is it about the past three months that they've not been able to be intimate as a husband and wife? We don't really get any indication that something significant happened three months ago, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we do either. I think it's – yeah, it's, it is it – is, uh, an interesting, you, you almost want to see like a, a prequel scene or something or have that extra appendix scene where, where, it, where it talks about that. But you don't, you, again, you don't get a whole lot of that. You have to make a decision based on the subtext of what you can experience from these words that are not saying necessarily what they mean. So it's, it, it's, it's a right field for actors and directors to kind of play around in because there are so many options you can go with to, to portray these characters. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some of what Alfieri narrates, especially at the beginning of the play. He starts to play by talking about this neighborhood in Brooklyn where it takes place. It's a view of the Brooklyn Bridge is, I think, the reference of the title, just kind of a reference to where in New York this play occurs. It's in a mostly Italian or Sicilian neighborhood. And Alfieri narrates that... um, He's been in this neighborhood for a while and has sort of seen it change as second-generation immigrants sort of adapt to this new American culture. He says, you know, now we're fully American. Now we're more civilized. Now we do half measures. And what he's referencing is this idea that 
prior to, you know, the the culture of this play, there was a culture of sort of taking things into your own hands, uh, casting your revenge when you want it. You know, at late, late in the play, after Eddie has made his big betrayal, Marco says, you know, in Italy, he'd be dead for this. And, and Alfieri is talking about, well, we, we're in a different place now and we're willing to accept half measures. We're willing to accept when the law needs to step in. We're not going around cutting each other in half with machine guns anymore. And he, you know, he poignantly says, I don't have a gun in my drawer as I used to. Things are different now. Are they different? Because his narrate, his, his reflection of the play is they're different except every once in a while. Right, 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 right. And they're different generationally too. Like they're, 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 the new generation comes in and they're not, they're not different yet. <laughs> like Marco, Marco comes in and he's from a world where that is still the norm. And he, he can't, he, by the end of the play, he, he can't um, deal with the fact that Eddie used the law to, to uh, have have his way in the end, um, and and he can't deal with the fact that the law doesn't provide any recourse for him. Yeah, uh, you know he he's in jail. So the the ultimate betrayal is that Eddie calls immigration on them, mm-hmm. which is especially poignant because before they arrive in the beginning of the play, they describe how they knew somebody who called immigration on one of his illegally entered relatives and that that guy was thrown out and never spoken to again nobody's seen him they beat him up yep and then later in the play eddie does that so he calls immigration on them and and immigration comes and arrests them and so marco and rodolfo are in jail and alfieri who's a lawyer has now stepped away from the role of spectator and into the action of the play which i love i think it's a brilliant device for the chorus to suddenly decide that they can't just sit around anymore yeah and alfieri gets involved and he becomes their lawyer and he goes to meet marco in jail and says, okay, Marco Rodolfo, I can get your bail. I can get you out on bail until your trial, which means you can work. It means, Rodolfo, you can try to get married. But, Marco, you have to promise me that you're not going to hurt Eddie if we let you out. Yeah. And he has a very hard time promising that. I don't know that he ever does. Like, I, I, was, I was reading through it, and he, like, six different... Alfieri asks him, six, like, six or seven different times whether or not he'll say he won't kill Marco, or he won't kill Eddie, and Marco always talks around it. <laughs> He's like, mm-hmm. you know this is a dishonest request that you're making of me, <laughs> is about as close as he ever gets to to saying that he won't. And and the interesting thing is, I think those that those those threads are still in Eddie as well. Eddie can't stand the fact that there's nothing in the law that lets him prove in his mind that, that Rudolfo is just trying to steal Catherine so that he can be an American citizen. He's blown away by this. It's really, it's really great parallel writing Mm -hmm. that throughout the whole play, Eddie has gone to Alfieri, I think at least twice, and they've had a long conversation, which basically ends in Eddie saying, what do you mean? There's nothing in the law that I can do about this? Rodolfo's just, he's working her over. He's trying to get his green card. He's stealing her. This is a theft. He's, he accuses him several times of being gay. He's really gay. He's not interested in her. He just wants his green card. What do you mean there's nothing in the law? And several times Alfieri says, you don't have any recourse in the law. There's nothing you can do. And Eddie can't believe believe that it blows his mind it's mm-hmm. unjust he thinks and then marco does the same thing yeah 
<laughs> yep, just but just like completely different though. Like you, Marco feels yeah, like totally this. different in every way. Yeah. First of all, starting with the fact that Alfieri went to him <laughs> that's rather true. than him coming to Alfieri. <laughs> that's, that's that's a good point. But also, Marco uh, sides with the old ways in that moment. Eddie doesn't. Eddie takes things into his own hands, but he goes against the community and against the neighborhood in that in that well and he sort of uses a half measure to bar right because he doesn't have any recourse in the law except that he could call immigration right. that's the only legal option for him and rather than go home and punch rodolfo's lights out right. or kill him you know which is, if you've never read the play before, about halfway it, through the play, you start to go, Eddie's going to kill us. Rudolph's dead. <laughs> that, that, that's how this play is going to end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happens. He doesn't go with that route. Instead, he takes a quote-unquote half measure. Yeah. And goes through the law and ends up almost worse off. <laughs> oh, yeah. At least in the eyes of the community. Definitely in the eyes of the community. And then, you, I mean, he gets his name taken away from him, which is, I think in this... This play, more than I think in any Greek tragedy, that seems like the worst part of this play is Eddie manically scrambling for his name when he knows he has no credence for his name. And by by his name, I mean his pride. Uh, Marco names Eddie as the person who uh, turned them into the immigration. In the middle of the street, Marco shouts out that this man turned us in, this man killed my children, this man killed my family as he's being called away by immigration. Because he's going to get deported and can't make money to support his family. So the the children are going to starve to death is his accusation. Yeah. It's it's interesting reading this play after having read The Crucible, mm-hmm. like doing them in pairs with the idea of names, right? Because the climactic end to The Crucible is, of course, John Proctor in the you know the striking image of The Crucible because it is my name, right? You can't name because yeah. I don't have another in my life, yep. you know. Mm-hmm. And then we get to this play, and the climactic scene is Eddie scrambling after Marco in the street. You give me back my name. Yeah. You can't take my name and drag it through the mud you give me my name yeah absolutely so such parallels with that and that scene in general is such i mean you, you get it's it's this Mm, the most primal that this play gets, I feel like, is that last scene. The, they, the, the stage directions describe they both like they're like circling like lions in the street. They sp- spread out their hands and they're kind of in this this almost like death dance with each other. And this was the moment in in the production in England that I saw that as as Marco kills Eddie with Eddie's own knife. Um, this rain of of blood hits this like pearlescent stage that has been completely clean this whole time, and it just like doosh, punches you right in the gut at the end of the play. And I think that if I were to direct this play, I I would I would need to find a similar image because in I, I'm very fond of this play. I love it. I'd love to direct it. It's on my list, but. I'm not always very satisfied with the ending when I read it. Mm -hmm. For for a play of this style, the denouement is not large. And it, it, it takes that, I think, because you're reading an Arthur Miller play. There's a sense of like needing to come to this conclusion of it all. You know, do you hear Willie Loman drive off, uh, and and uh and then the next scene is the funeral scene, right? Yeah. 
You see the crucible and you get to see John Proctor, my name, my name. And he gets let off and you see Elizabeth Proctor reflect as he's being hung on, on him having his goodness. Right. But this play just sort of ends with him being stabbed, except if you return yourself to thinking about it in that tragic structure. Right. Because who ends the play but the chorus? Exactly. With a reflection on the events of the day. Mm hmm. And and you have to ask the question, does it does it fulfill the couple rules of tragedy that we know? Is the world better off without Eddie Carbone by the end of the play? Or, or uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's such a hard question to answer, even in no, your tragedy. No, it's not. I, I don't know that the world's better off without Eddie Carbone. The people that neighborhood him, maybe is. Maybe not. Maybe not that he's dead. Like, of course, of course, that is is a messy ground we don't want to go in. But Eddie Carbone out of the situation where he's controlling Catherine's life and keeping her Catherine's in the home, he, how he's yeah. turned people in. Rodolfo is is, is going to yeah. be a citizen still. Maybe the more. Maybe the more sharp question, especially as it relates to Greek tragedy, is has Eddie received the just rewards of his actions? Mm-hmm. That's a, Has yep. he been punished appropriately, right? Because what is Oedipus Rex? He stumbles out with his eyes streaming in blood. Right, Creon right, right, right. has to carry his son out of the tomb. Mm-hmm. And Eddie is stabbed with his own knife. You know, I mean, how poignant is that yeah. for this play about betrayal? Stabbed with his own knife and dies in the arms of his real wife, the mm-hmm. one he's been neglecting as opposed to Catherine. There's sort of a just world writing conclusion to this play as you see in those tragics and then the chorus comes up and says this is what happened and this is this is why it's complicated this right. is why he, interestingly and maybe in one of the turns and commentaries on that tragic structure i'm not sure the chorus offers us a clean moral as they sometimes as they tend to do in those greek tragedies right right yeah i think i'd agree with that it is it is kind of a uh, a reflection of someone who goes you know wow that just happened um, <laughs> um and and just the, the- and, and alfieri's like his point is sort of that it's complicated, right? He he's reflecting on well, we went, this this event that I saw sort of went back to the sort of full measures, not these half measures. But now now we do half measures, and I think that that's better. People aren't dying in the streets like Eddie died in the streets. But then he says, but. There's something that brings me back to the memory of Eddie. Something pure about how, you know, he was always himself. He pursued things full on. He wasn't hiding. He was he was after what he was after. And uh, he says, like, you know, I'll remember him more fondly than my other clients or something like that. Right. He, he has that line about, like he, like, he allowed himself to be known or something like that. And, and in, in all his entirety. Do you agree with Alfieri in that? I, gosh, I that's such a I don't know. <laughs> I I would like to hear lots of smart people talk about that. That's one of those, you know, it's one of those issues where it's like I want to hear someone else who really has dug into this and I want to hear like a whole panel go one by one. Yeah. Is it true that Eddie was really uh sort of fully himself, allows people to know who, you know, who he is and what he's after? I I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I agree with him. Mm-hmm. Um but I also I also think that there there is an earnestness to Eddie um in his in 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 sort of 
what he did, he did full on, right? You know, and that sort of ends up being his tragic flaw, the sort of protective, affectionate feelings that one has for one's children. He takes way too far and becomes possessive and lustful. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think I think I'm I'm kind of in that field too of this like I, I agree that he is this being who like lives to the full in in the direction he has chosen. But I'm pairing that with these scenes where Eddie can't even get out what he wants from Beatrice. Like he there's a scene where he finally decides he's going to tell Beatrice that what he wants to do in bed is what he wants to do in bed, and that's gonna be it. And he he talks around it so he can't get the words out. He can't express himself to to the fullest in that moment. He can't say straight up to to uh, Alfieri that I think Rodolfo is gay, and that's the reason why I don't like him. Um, he, right, talks- he even goes as far as to kiss him to prove right. that he must be gay. And even after that, he can't say it. Right, exactly. He, he just calls him, you know, not right and weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has all these like kind of sidestepping tactics to get his goal. So I, I, I don't know either. I'm, I'm kind of caught in that, that similar place of I agree that he is this primal being who who uh, enacted his will into the world. But and for me, the most striking moment between the characters comes at the at the point where somebody finally says it. They finally just come out and say it, right? So Marco is coming. They think the, they think they're coming to get in a fight. They're all trying to convince Eddie, Rodolfo, Catherine, Beatrice. They're trying to convince Eddie that we should just run away. We should just leave. And Eddie, being Eddie, says, "No, I'm going to stay here. He wants to come and fight me. He can come and fight me. He should. He needs to apologize. You're not going anywhere, Catherine. You can't marry Rodolfo. Blah 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 blah." And finally, Beatrice's accusation is. Um, is basically, you don't even want Marco to forgive you. That's not even what you're really after here. She says, you want something else, Eddie, and you can never have her. There it is. There, I mean, one word is the is the closest we ever get to the accusation of the core of the play. The thing that every everybody knows what we're watching. Right. Nobody reads this script or leaves the theater going, did Eddie like... Catherine? <laughs> was he kind of in love with her? I didn't really get that, you know? Confusing. Everybody knows. <laughs> but nobody says it until the one word at the end. You can never have her. Mm-hmm. And then they all go, oh, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And the scene moves on. Right. Yep. And actually, I think uh, Marco enters at that point. Right, and calls him down, yeah. So it moves on, you know? Yes, and 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 having that that all the way to the end, all the way to the end, we've been hanging on to these these words that talk around to have it named and then so briefly you know moved past and and eddie eddie even in that moment eddie won't admit to it he's he's appalled that she would accuse him of that and then marco calls him out into the street for what ends up being his death well i think you know we we've talked so much about the different parts of the play i think we're gonna call that our conversation about a view from the bridge that was that fun. That was fun. I, I, that was a good conversation. That was mm-hmm. fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed this play a lot. I, this is, this is one that I, I think still has a lot of power and a lot of things to say and a lot of good meaty roles for both genders in this play. Um, I think I, I, I would be very excited to act, direct, be in, watch this play anytime I can again. It's just so good. I like it a lot. Yeah, I totally agree. It 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 is definitely 
the Crucible is a play I'd really like to direct, and so is A View from the Bridge. And if I only ever in my life got to direct one Arthur Miller play, I, I, I mean, it wouldn't even really be that hard for me to set aside Death of a Salesman. Yeah. <laughs> as fond as I am of that script, I mean, The Crucible and A View from the Bridge, these first two that we've done, are, are by far my favorite of the Arthur Millers. And I, I'd have a hard time picking between the two. But there's something so simple about this one. You know, it started as a one-act, right? Mm -hmm. It started like the Greek tragedies, just sort of a short look at someone's fall. Yeah. And and, and Arthur Miller has expanded out into just a full-length heart-wrencher mm -hmm. as you watch this guy who seems like a decent guy just descend. And there's something so so pure, pure about yeah, that yeah. story. You know, it's the reason why the Greek tragedies are still done. Some, there's, there's, it's cathartic, right? I mean, that's what this play is. Absolutely. And you read reviews of different productions, and that's what you see over and over. The audience just leaves wrecked. They just leave having left this just this negativity, this hurt, they just leave it in this emotional outpouring of watching the fall of Eddie Carbone. Maybe that's what I'd retitle the script. <laughs> the, fall the fall of Eddie Carbone. Of Eddie Carbone. Nice, nice, nice. I like it. <laughs> I agree. I, I loved reading the introduction to this one. I had never read Arthur Miller's introduction to this one. And his story about how he wrote it was so refreshing to me in terms of like how I would approach writing a play. Because most of the time I'm like, okay, I got to think about these characters and build out their life and stuff like that. And he's like, I heard this story from a cargo dock worker once, and I put it away for a long time, never even thought about it. And then I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, I think it is a play. And so I wrote it. I'm like, dang it, Arthur Miller! <laughs> <laughs> it has, I mean, it just has that sense about it, right? That's partially why it works so well in sort of a Greek mythic structure. The other thing I forgot to mention in my context is that when um, when View from the Bridge was a one act, it was in verse too, mm. which is, of course, it pulls even more of that sort of Greek structure of the, the verse into it as well. And it, the reason why I think it works so well in that sort of higher structure is that it has that feeling of just like a story we tell each yeah. other. Mm -hmm. There's this guy, and he, you know, he was in love with his niece, and it, it, that that if that's not a Greek play, I've never heard one. <laughs> yeah. There was this guy in love with his niece. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if, if if you all have have ever seen this play, have ever interacted with this play, I know some of you have. You were there with me. That um, you can uh, want to talk to us about it. We want to talk to you about it. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at No Script Podcast, or uh, we have a Gmail account as well, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to continue the conversation with you. This is a play with a lot of images and evokes a lot of feelings, and sometimes it's good to talk about your feelings, so talk to us about it. If you liked this episode, if you like some of our other episodes, the best thing that you can do for us besides going to Patreon, that's the best That is thing. the best. But second best is sharing this episode on your social media. Just hit share, whatever platform you want. Uh, we know that if you are here because you like scripts, that means that you know other people that like scripts. So please invite those people to join the No Script community. Tell them about us. Recommend your favorite episode. We both have our favorite episodes that we like to recommend to people. I'm sure that you do. Help us to get new people as part of this community. You can find the podcast at Podbean, where it's hosted, at Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and at Spotify. Yes, indeed. So until next week when we're doing another Arthur Miller play. All My Sons are next week, right? All My Sons. Yeah, yep. We are going with All My Sons next week. We'll see you yeah, there. Yeah, see you then. Until then, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script the Podcast. Thanks, y'all. See ya. <laughs>